This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we discuss the political issues of today. And we are going to talk today about the politics of the post office with Leo Raymond, one of the foremost experts on the postal service. How are you, sir? Good, thank you. How are you? All righty. Hey, thanks for uh, being with us today. Um, so the Postal Service, I, as long as I can remember, there's been talk about it. It's always been struggling. I think uh, over the last 10 years, it's lost $87 billion. And I think the liabilities and debts going forward is about $188 billion. How did we get here? Uh, well, it's one of those situations where over time, the original purpose and uh, and you know, framework of the Postal Service uh, has become increasingly out of date. You've got something called the Universal Service Obligation, which means the Postal Service, in general terms, the Postal Service has to provide postal services throughout the country, uh, delivering mail, for example, being the biggest one, and have a retail presence throughout the country because it's supposed to be binding the nation together, as the phrase goes, which is a wonderful public public service, but it's also expected to operate in a relatively business-like fashion. So as you can easily understand, if you've got something that is uh, expected to do things that are service-oriented, that are not necessarily profitable, while at the same time uh, keeping yourself reasonably balanced financially, you're going to end up in a, in, in a self-conflicting situation. And that's, that's what we've got, and that's what's been building for, for years and years and years. There are other things that are affecting it, of course, but that's sort of really the 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 under the underlying issue and it's kind of interesting because over the last 20 years the amount of mail handled the amount of pieces has cut by 50 percent and i guess the introduction of the internet and email has really um had a uh, an impact on it, as has amazon and federal express and of course ups and um, has that been the driver recently of just their struggles well, the, the, the peak was uh, you know, several years, about a decade ago, around 212 billion pieces, and it's fallen now so that this year are going to be well under 150, 150 billion. And, and, and that's been, we're talking there about all kinds of mail, letters and flats and, uh, and packages. Uh, and, and the biggest uh, cause of the loss of letter mail, of course, is the internet. People can now send an email or a text much more quickly. Uh, and so now culturally, the way that we, people communicate uh, is is no longer as much relied upon print, you know, hard copy mail, a mm-hmm. letter or a card. Mm-hmm. And first class mail has always been the, the 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 big money source for the postal service. So as that goes away, you you lose a lot of revenue. To replace that with the uh, with marketing mail, you know, advertising mail, you'd have to have two and a half times as many pieces, and that's simply not going to be the, the case because even that's being diverted now. So you've got a, an overall change in how America communicates, and that's causing a decline in mail volume. Packages, of course, as we saw during the pandemic, um, you know, can be can be a lifesaver economically, but but they're a lot different creature to handle. You can put 500 pieces of letter mail in a tray, but you can't put 500 pieces of package mail in a tray. That fills up a truck. Mm-hmm. So so the handling, the vehicle requirements, everything is different for that. The equation is different, so the cost profile is different. And, you know, it, it's just it's it's just not what 
the postal service's traditional infrastructure is designed to to handle money-wise it's great income but it's not quite the same as handling the types of product they've always handled traditionally and once again congress is going to try to restructure this kind of prop it up and what do you see as the key provisions of that that might be able to help the postal service survive well, what what Congress needs to do, I guess, in that regard, is to undo what it did in 15 years ago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hi, I'm from Congress. I'm here to help you. Good old Congress. Yeah, yeah. So, so after many, many years, um, they passed a post, what we call postal reform in 2006, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. And, and legislators from both sides of the aisle and the industry had been struggling for years to get that done. And while it did some good things, um, it also imposed a, uh, a requirement that the Postal Service prefund 75 years of future retiree health care health costs uh, over a 10 year period so that you're talking about 55, 58 billion dollars, something like that, uh, which you know, even in the best of times is, is, is a pretty substantial amount of money. Sure, sure. I think back then it was somewhere around seven or eight percent of the Postal mm-hmm. Service's annual revenue. So. Mm-hmm. That quickly got become infeasible. Um, of course, then the recession hit. Diversion really took hold. A variety of things happened so that it became an, an, an infeasible amount of money to to uh, to raise. So that but put them in debt for forty billion dollars and change. Uh, plus, you've got the other circumstances we discussed. You know, cost cost of infrastructure, cost of service, being uh, pretty much. Uh, a constant while you've got loss of revenue, loss of income because of changes in the mail mix. So things have been going in the wrong direction. But the one thing that they could do, Congress could do, is to uh, is to uh, waive that that obligation and the prefunding obligation that the post service pays. They go along. And then there's the other thing is what they call Medicare integration. Um, a lot of money that's been put into the the health fund, this prefunding thing. Uh, would would go to substantially pay most of what they owe uh, if you allowed postal employees to be fully participating in Medicare. Right now, they pay into it, but they, they cannot fully participate in in, the, in all the benefits. So, the resulting costs for healthcare fall to the postal service, and of course, that's how that was contributing to the debt. And then they also have the legacy obligations to the civil service retirement system. How does that work? Well, that that's an interesting question. Um, this goes back, oh gosh, 20, 20 years probably, I don't know, 18, 20 years, when it was discovered that the Postal Service um, was overfunding uh, the civil service retirement system to the tune of like $105, $108 billion. Well, obviously, that fund, which is like any other fund, Congress has already spent the money. So it's not going to, they're not going to write a check to the Postal Service to pay them back. So a variety of machinations occurred over the ensuing several years to find a way to, to maintain the payments, maintain, find an excuse for the Postal Service to keep making the payments into some sort of fund uh, because the federal budget depended upon that influx of, of cash. So that, that went on and eventually postal reform um, found that, we, that they could put the money into prefunding future health care costs. So the, the overfunding of the civil service retirement system never did result in, in, a, in a refund of the Postal Service or to the rate payers, mm-hmm. just different ways for Congress to maintain the cash flow. Because, of course, you know, you, you, you plan on getting money. You, you suddenly realize it's not supposed to be paid. You still plan on making on getting it and you still plan on spending it. So, mm-hmm. you know, how that works. 
Yeah. So you um, you had a, a long career at the post office, temporary clerk. You moved step by step through supervisory, managerial, executive positions. Um, I have a lot of friends grew up as postal carriers, was a great job, um, you know, great you know, benefits and, and salary to raise a family. They send their kids to college. There's about 450,000 postal workers right now. What happens to them as we look down the road? Well, um, <laughs> that's a question that, 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 that really needs to be addressed rather soberly, not just by the postal service, but by, by the, the unions. Um, the public is going to change its mailing habits, whether any of us like it or not, who are in the mailing business. Um, the costs of the postal service are going to continue. Something has to give at some point. And, and if you've got too many people, too many facilities, too many post offices, you name it, too much infrastructure uh, for the product that you're handling, for the amount of packages, the amount of letters, whatever, then there needs to be a reckoning at some point. And this is not an insult to anybody who who's works the postal service. It's a simple fact. Any business that no longer has as much business as it once had needs to somehow shrink. And, and there have been, there's been very little attention given to that on the part of, of, of the unions because they, of course, their job isn't to tell people that their jobs are going to go away. Right. Their job is to, is to perpetuate the, the status quo. So, you know, especially the clerks union, they, they, they always want to have, you know, the, the status quo continue. They want to have raises. They want to have mm-hmm. cost of living adjustments. That's all well and good. But, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost someday. And right. just won't, if you're a carrier, your, your future is much brighter because people keep moving and building new housing developments. The number of delivery points keeps growing every right. year. Uh, but the number of pieces of mail to be handled doesn't. Right. And um, there's been talk, and, and this is something that always gets the public riled up about slowdowns in delivery, and also always the question of canceling Saturday delivery, which I think they did one time and just was a, a major outcry. What kind of service uh, changes are you seeing as a result of the situation they're in? It's, it's funny you mentioned Saturday delivery. There's a, a, a rider that goes on an appropriations bill every year that requires continuation of six-day delivery and essentially blocks the closure of small post offices because they lose money. One year, Congress had not gotten around to passing that bill before the old one expired, and PMG Pat Donahoe decided, well, here I go, and he announced the end of Saturday delivery. And of course, that just woke Congress right up and they passed the rider and that was the end of that. But Saturday delivery is one of those things that that based upon data from the Postal Service is much less of an issue with the public than it is uh, with Congress. It's also an issue for the carriers union because, of course, if you have five day delivery rather than six day delivery, that means ending the Saturday delivery would eliminate the need for one sixth of the carrier force. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's something which is more controversial as a political issue, union issue, than it is really a practical issue. If you have X number of pieces per delivery stop, it's it's not as, it's better in a way, it's more efficient sure. to deliver those in five days rather than in six. But it, this is not, it's not viewed as something um, economical. It's, it, it's, it, it becomes a political issue. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think you and I would be disrupted no. by it, but. No. 
And um, so the other thing is the fleet. So the fleet, a lot of the the vehicles mm-hmm. out there, they're coming up on 35 years in yeah. service. Yeah. Uh, yes. No airbags, no air conditioning, nope. no lock brakes. Um, nope. They're talking about $8 billion for electric vehicles. This is another major cost that they're staring at. Well, that, that's it. And this has been a cost they've been staring at now for a number of years, but there just hasn't been any money in the kitty to pay for these. Um, they've, they've committed to spending, I think, $480 million to, to finish a prototype for the next generation vehicle, which I think we may have seen some pictures of it. That's going to be more, it's more modern, clearly, in design and features. It's bigger and holds more to, to accommodate packages. But it, it's going to be, you know, $6 billion, $6.5 billion just for a, an internal combustion engine fleet and a good deal more, as you as you mentioned, for an electric fleet. And there's still no money there. Congress has talked about giving them money for the electric fleet, but I don't see anybody, I don't see any check being written yet. And it's kind of interesting. The Postal Service goes back to 1775, one of the agencies, one of the only agencies um, written into the Constitution, first Postmaster General, Benjamin Franklin. Right. Um, it's a beloved agency. Does that factor into some of these decisions that are being made? Well, it's, it, there's a very romanticized view of the Postal Service, you know, among the public, because the public knows their local post office, their local postmaster, perhaps the window clerk, perhaps the carrier, the source carrier. Mm-hmm. That's their view of the Postal Service. If you're on the other side of the, of the, of the, of the counter, if you will, if you're a, a commercial mailer, it's a whole different situation. And your, your, uh, your view of the Postal Service and its, and its business activities and its, its legislative foundations and so forth is much, much different. So, you know, I mean, the post, people always talk about the Postal Service um, as, as a venerable institution. That's true. It's, it's a necessary function of, of the government, I guess. It's still a government agency. But the, the trouble is, is that nobody, whether it's public or commercial or political, wants to sit down and have, you know, a, a cold-hearted conversation about, okay, if we love this so much, let's support it. Or mm-hmm. if we don't, if we're not going to support it, then let's figure out what we're going to do. Because what you or I spend on stamps, is not going to keep, make, make the water boil. Right. You know, right. it's just not going to do it. So right now you've got the majority of the vast majority of, of revenue comes from commercial mailers and they don't really have as much, have as, as much input as, as that value should represent. They're not at the negotiation table. When we talk about union contracts, uh, they're not politically influential in Congress, unfortunately. So it's a situation where everybody wants service, everybody wants to maintain this, but they don't want to. They don't want to support it. They'll say, well, "Let let those guys pay for it." Those guys being the commercial mailing community. And it's kind of interesting because we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, and if the stamp goes up five cents, people go crazy. Oh, they go nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. You always. I can re- always recall hearing on the evening news. You know, Earth cracks in half, but first. <laughs> The price of stamps is going up. <laughs> it's, you know, and it's, it's, come on, people, it's not that much money. I mean, maybe at one point, if you if you sent out a lot of letters, a lot of cards, and things, the that's that may may have had an economic impact. But raising the price of a stamp three cents or whatever is not something that's going to cause anybody any household to go without food. <laughs> it's just not that much. On the other hand, if you're a commercial mailer, if you're you know, name it, a store, if you're a restaurant, if you're a, a, a bank, if you're an insurance company and you increase prices, 
multiply that out, then it makes a lot of difference. Plus, these same people, whether you're a marketing mail sender or a periodicals mail pr- producer, mm-hmm. you've got other things going on. Right now, there's a shortage of labor. This You have to pay more money. You, right. Equipment doesn't run on, on love. You've got paper shortages. So the commercial mailer is looking at a whole different cost equation than is you know Mrs. Hoople, who's going to now pay 58 cents rather than 55. Right. And then uh, we're talking to you, we're talking about employees and, and again, kind of a sacrosanct, uh, nothing, no wind, no rain will interrupt the post office. Oh, yeah. But there's been talk about, you know, making post offices in Walmart and Staples. I, mm-hmm. I think I can go to my CVS and get a book of stamps. And mm-hmm. that seems to be a sacrosanct yeah, wh- thing that the, 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 I guess maybe the unions don't want to see. Well, no, that's, that is true. What happens, um, well, I don't know about where you are, but where, where I am, almost any retail, any grocery store can sell you a book of stamps. You go to Costco and book, get a book of stamps or, or a, 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 you know, a wheel of stamps, whatever you want to yes, call it. Yes, right, right. You know, I get a whole bunch of stamps. But as far as having um, a, a, a retail presence uh, in Staples or Walmart or whatever, mm-hmm. just as UPS does, the Postal Service tried that, uh, I think it was with Sears, as a matter of fact, several years ago. And the, the clerks union pitched a fit because, of course, they perceived that as taking work away from them. Sure, sure. They did not see it as improving the business of their employer. Mm-hmm. So so there is, I, unless there's something going to happen at some point because of a change of heart, uh, the idea of having postal facilities, quote unquote, in uh, private enterprise within mm-hmm. the stores, that's probably not going to, not going to be acceptable to the, to the union because they, they don't see it as, as a business issue, as a business improvement or business development issue. They see it simply as competing with their narrow interest of having dues paying members. And um, one of the things about the mail that's interesting, though, that the importance of it grew in this last election, because um, I think I saw a half of the voters went either absentee or mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that going to affect um, the voting that we're, we're now using more um, mail to do that? The, well, I think that the next next time, shall we say, um, you're not going to you're going to see a much more prepared postal service. The last time it was, they do have ongoing um, outreach to election officials and they do have ongoing election mail programs so that it wasn't like there was no, there was nothing going on. I think there was just the surge of interest and the political spotlight that was put on the election last time for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the postal service, came through. They did a good job. They, they worked very hard to make sure there was nothing lying around any place. Um, but then I think the lesson they learned is, well, next time, given what we just saw, we're going to have to be um, way more prepared. We're going to have to work with the election officials a lot more effectively. And, and they started that process. I, I don't think they're sitting down, not letting it, not letting that uh, get appropriate attention. Some of the problem they had, of course, was not of their doing. Um, you had election officials who would accept applications for absentee or vote by mail up to the day before the election. Right. right. Well, that ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can just, mm-hmm. that just isn't going to fly. So, and plus you have a wide inconsistency in, in what um, local officials would, would use as a design for their outgoing or return piece. So that was a problem with the postal service. You're looking for this election mail. You're literally looking through the mail that you have on hand to find these, mm-hmm. to make sure you can pull them out. And they, they were all kinds of different 
different designs. So one of the things the Postal Service is working hard to do now is to is to encourage this level of standardization in in format, in in, in barcoding, for example, and in how both in how both the outgoing and incoming piece uh, appear, and that I think would help them help them have a much easier job next time because there, there will be attention given to it. And there will be people looking at how the post service does. So we had the um, former postmaster, uh, General Louis DeJoy. He got into a little bit of a jackpot. He was accused of uh, political fundraising through his business. Um, how has that impacted this whole discussion of reform? Louis DeJoy is still the PMG. Uh, oh, he is? I didn't realize yes. that. Oh, wow. Yes. There are a lot of people who might wish he weren't, but <laughs> he's, he's, he's still there as of this exactly. morning. He was Sorry, still, Louis. He was still, yes, that's right. He, he'll be mad at me again for that. But, but um, yeah, he, he, he did get in trouble. Of course, his whole, you know, you got to look back at the political atmosphere, you know, in, in what, a year, eight, four, 15 months ago. Um, and there, everybody's looking at everybody else and pointing fingers and accusing things. He he did sort of pop out of nowhere, as, as the story goes, and he did have a lot. He still does have a lot of political political connections, and there still are questions surrounding, you know, who did what and who knew what and why did this happen. Um, but uh, but unless there is some real smoking gun coming up, I think it'll all of that will stay in the realm of of political, you know, finger pointing and accusations. Well, he's kind of interesting because he did not come up through the Postal Service. And I remember him getting a lot of criticism for that. And now, obviously, the I mean, I'm just reading a book on the Secret Service. And whenever anybody from the Secret Service didn't come from the ranks, they, they, they gave him a hard time. But he proposed a lot of these reforms we're talking about. Um, they seem to be good ideas, do you think? Well, uh, you know, um, he's the first postmaster general to come from private sector since Marvin Runyon. Back in the 90s, Marvin Runyon had been at TVA, had been at Ford, um, and, and he had a different approach, as anybody coming from the outside would do. Um, I, I think the issue is whether a, new, a newcomer can balance fresh ideas against a certain readiness to understand what you're changing before you change it. And I think a lot of the criticism that he's facing is because He's sort of, you know, bullying ahead with a plan here sure, without sure. having really, mm-hmm. he says he's talked to people, but there's nobody that I've talked to because <laughs> he's talked to them, um, you know, and, and you know, it, because we are within the, and I'm not in the beltway, but we're on that beltway sure, s- sure. circle, no yeah. pun intended. Yes. Um, there's no, the associations all look at each other and go, who's he been talking to? Cause, right. Because the, 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 the plan that he came out with, uh, was very, well, I shouldn't say very much, but was heavily reflective of a plan that uh, Jack Potter had come out with 13 years ago or whenever it was. And it doesn't say anything really shocking. Obviously, we, there has to be financial fixes. Obviously, right. we have to reconcile the infrastructure. And we have to do a lot of things. But where I think he's been most um, heavily criticized is in regard to his his selection of um, the rate changes that he that he and the the board approved, of course, but I'm sure mm-hmm. they turned to him for for guidance. He had said he was going to be judicious and prudent, and then turned around and, and used every bit of rate authority he had to increase prices, and doing so at a time when there was a lot of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction over service mm-hmm. coming coming out of last winter and 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 last year. Sure. 
And at the same time, he's, he's proposing to, do, to, to change the service standards for first-class mail, something else that, that even the regulator said wasn't such a great idea. Right. So he's being very obstinate in, in pressing forward with things that we believe, we being the industry believe, he probably ought to th- rethink and have a conversation about uh, with people who have a little more experience in this kind of business than he does. Uh, does he last? I mean, sh- will he survive? Um, well, only the board of governors can hire or fire a postmaster general. Mm-hmm. And the five people who were then, there we were there was a shortage of governors uh, at the time. So those who hired him are still there. Uh, there are new ones, of course, that have joined. But unless he does something seriously wrong, I don't think just having the industry mad or, you know, having business consequences, possibly, you know, raises possibilities is going to rise to the level of a firing offense. And, and this all leads to this long discussion we've always had of making the post office a private operator kind of standing on its own. Is that going to happen at all? Uh, well, I, I can picture the newspaper ad for sale. <laughs> 270-year-old institution with 31,000 outlets and $160 billion in debt. Please call Louis DeJoy at 202-268. You know, I, 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 just, I just don't – no, no. I, I think the idea of, of just simply selling it off, that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, politically, for one thing, it's, it's not going to happen. It's also something which, which is simply economically unattractive to anybody. Um, whether – having said that, you can also look at, at – chunking out parts of it. Uh, if you th- if you look at, at the processing infrastructure, for example, there's no reason why a, a, a processing plant needs to be staffed by postal people. It could be privatized. It sure, could be, sure. high, you know, you could let a contract to, you know, sure. John Doe company. Uh-huh. You could have a postal manager on site to make sure that things are done a certain way and have postal inspection service right. oversight. But, but the work of operating a, a letter sorting machine is not something unique to, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no unique knowledge to that. Right. Uh, I think most people, though, would say that, that first mile and last mile are, are things which, which really are appropriate to stay within the postal system. You know, the retail function, the, the post, office, uh, post office counters, that is, that is one end. The other end being, of course, delivery. Uh, having that, that last mile is something which uh, is probably the last thing that anybody would ever want to suggest uh, outsourcing to another company. You don't, want, you, you don't want to have that loss of custody. And that's great. That's a great line. I like that last mile, first mile. I think that's a great way of, uh, of explaining it. So as you look at the Postal Service, what do you see in terms of their service, um, kind of in terms of their function coming up? Uh, <laughs> nothing's going to be easy here. Nothing is going to be easy. Um, they, the postal service, uh, has a, a, a challenge that if it intends to retain the, the business of, you name it, what type of business that has now, uh, where there is any option to, to go elsewhere, it's going to have to be attentive to service and to cost. Uh, you know, the Postal Service's monopoly is somewhat hollow. Mm-hmm. If you're going to send, um, what the phrase is, um, bills and bills, statements and bills and actual co- actual personal correspondence, those have to go by statute as first class mail mm-hmm. if they are in hard copy form. Well, nobody says you have to send it out in hard copy form. 
So if you get your bank statement or your credit card bill or whatever by email, that's completely legal. There's no, mm. no prohibition to that. So having a monopoly on hard copy and mail is not what it, not what it was once cracked up to be before mm. this internet thing came along. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so you, you've got that, <clears throat> pardon me, you've got that to, to deal with. If you want to keep hard copy mail in the mail as it is, whatever there is now or slow down its departure, you've got to be able to make it affordable and desirable and have a level of service that is, that is unquestionable. And I don't think taking first class mail uh, and, and, you know, backing down the service by a day or more in some parts of the country is exactly in line with, with that need or exactly a good idea, particularly if you're raising the price of that product. Yes, it's, just, yes. it's just not, doesn't make sense. Yes. But then again, I'm not the BMG. Not yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. now, now, speaking of that, there you are. There you are. You have, you have this huge enterprise. You have all these, all these outlets. You have, what, 600,000 employees counting off of part-time people. And you're paid the princely sum of like $280,000 $280, a year. Right. I, I think the, the chairman of UPS has that in his couch cushions. Yes, yes, So it's, yes, it's yes. not one of those things where yeah. it attracts people. Right. I want to be the PMG. Right. Unless you are, you know, a senior executive in the Postal Service and you want to have that as your as the capstone of your career. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit. You are now the managing director at Mailers Hub. Tell us yes. about Mailers Hub. Uh, we are uh, we look like, smell like and taste like an association, a trade association. But we're not. We are a, a private subscription service that provides information, uh, training, uh, whole, the whole wide gamut of things that a trade association would do. Uh, and we are in some ways the only uh, group, I won't use the word association, uh, that operates on a national basis and is focused exclusively on commercial mail producers. Um, within the D.C. area, there are a number of trade associations that, that handle mail. They're fine people. They deal with different segments of, of the industry, some uh, with, uh, like, for example, periodicals producers or newspaper producers. Uh, some handle, some work with uh, certain segments of first-class mail producers like pre-sort industry, pre-sort companies. Uh, you've got some excellent advocacy groups. Postcom is, is, does a great job of, of advocating for mm -hmm. the industry. Um, but we have our own little niche when we just, we just work with, um, with the folks who bring you your, what's in your mailbox. That's all, that's all we do. <laughs> That's wonderful. You were a delight to have on and a treasure for sure. Well, and you. I'm sure when the price of stamps goes up again, we'll have you back on. As a matter of fact, we'll give everybody your cell phone number and they can complain to you. Oh, thanks. Yes. Thanks. Yes, that's right. That's my email. My, my email address is lewis.dejoy. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, you're going to be hearing from him too. Oh, but, well, uh, I'm, I'm already off his Christmas card. Yes, I know I'm that. Sure, I'm sure. Well, but yeah, this was a real treat. So we, we appreciate it. Um, and so we want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods, our contributing voice talent, John, the one take Terzis, the voiceover Tampa Bay, and of course, Dave, our announcer. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, 
scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.